Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is episode number 38. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Don Lehman. Dr. Lehman is a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences in the Department of Food Science and Human Nutrition. Dr. Lehman earned his Bachelor in Science in Chemistry as well as a Master's in Science of Biochemistry at the Illinois State University before going on to get his Ph.D. in Human Nutrition and Biochemistry at the University of Minnesota. Dr. Lehman has been focusing his research on the understandings of the relationship between protein and amino acid requirements as it relate to human health. He also has a profound understanding of the carbohydrate metabolic needs and current dilemmas due to modern eating styles and sedentary behavior. In particular, his research seeks to understand the impact of diet and exercise on obesity, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome in humans. His early work helped us understand the ability of branched-chain amino acids, especially leucine, as it is a trigger for protein synthesis. He and I spend the hour taking a global anthropologic look at his work as it relates to humans, including women and children, and as we age, what are the downstream risks of not getting enough protein, and at the frequency that's necessary, at the volume that's necessary. We also look at the difference between plant protein versus animal proteins, and is there a difference in whether we should consume the same volume of grams of proteins as the form they're coming into our body and how we digest them, how we metabolize them, how they're used. Are there problems in uptake and absorption due to different chemicals involved in the meat or the uh, vegetable type protein? It is a wide ranging conversation full of nuggets of information that everybody can use in order to enhance our lives from the earliest days after birth, all the way to the ends of our lives. There is a lot to be had in this conversation, so I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Don Lehman. As always, if you have a moment and you do enjoy this podcast, please go ahead and rate it on Apple Podcasts. Let's get started. Well, hello, Dr. Don Lehman from Chicago. It is a great pleasure to have you on the show today and uh, looking forward to talking about all things protein. My pleasure to join you, Chris. All right, so let's get started. So I wanna really look at a, the, the world of macronutrients, specifically protein as it relates to, to children and adults. And I wanna talk about your paper. I'm gonna read a section from the journal Nutrition and Metabolism where you wrote, the developing controversy about dietary guidelines for protein stems from current perceptions that protein intakes above minimum requirements have no benefit and may pose long-term health risks. These beliefs are largely based on assumptions and extrapolations with little foundation in nutrition science. Diets with increased protein have now been shown to improve adult health with benefits for treatment or prevention of obesity, osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, and sarcopenia. And that's where it ends. So yeah. you clearly have shifted the framework for what we in society have been thinking for a long time, where, you know, they have this thing called the RDA. We have this reality of what we need. And you're looking at that and saying, hey, hey, there's more here. So let's start by sort of defining the process of ingesting the three major macronutrients, what that process looks like, how it comes in, and then want to really shift into protein specifically. Yeah, um, <clears throat> just to get that started, um, I think one of the things that people need to keep in mind is that for every nutrient, they're all they're all basically chemicals. And for every nutrient, we have a range of intake. Um, people, uh, a good way to think about it is something like vitamin C. Uh, we know that vitamin C at 60 milligrams per day uh, will prevent the disease called scurvy, uh, debilitating, deadly disease. Uh, but routinely, you know, buy any supplement for vitamin C and it's 250, 500 milligrams. It's, it's four or five, 10 times the RDA. Uh, and so we know that there's a range that with vitamin C that may help with immunity. And we need to think about macronutrients that way too. There's a minimum need, but there may be more of an optimum need. And so as we get into any nutrient, we need to think that way. Uh, and with protein, we get stuck on the minimum 
and also trying to think it's an optimum. And that's what we've kind of learned isn't true. So back to your question, uh, ask your macronutrient question again. Right. So exactly. And I love the whole optimization reality because I think we have been stuck in this RDA of the, the base minimum. But yeah, the question, so humans and for the lay public and also the for the clinician side. So as humans and all mammals on the planet, we consume macronutrients in, you know, in concert together. So to walk us through the process of, of it enters the mouth and then it ends up in the cell. Yeah. So the, one of the things that they realize is that we get nutrients from foods. And so we tend to think, talk about protein and carbohydrate and fats, <clears throat> but the reality, those are foods and what we need are what's inside of them. <clears throat> Again, my my analogy is uh, with protein is that uh, with a vitamin pill, we don't have a requirement for the pill. What we have is a requirement for the 12 vitamins that we get inside the pill. And the reality is we don't actually have a requirement for protein. What we have is a requirement for the 20 amino acids in it. And so as soon as we ingest food, we begin to break those foods down into nutrient levels, uh, which can then be absorbed. So, you know, protein we take in, uh, it may be a very long string of what we call amino acids, and the body begins to digest those down, and we absorb them as single amino acids and sometimes as dye and tripeptides, small amino acids. Uh, those get into the blood. <clears throat> a lot of them are metabolized um, uh, immediately in the gut. For example, glutamine uh, is almost entirely metabolized for the gut and for energy. Uh, phenylalanine is heavily removed by the liver. Uh, and then some, a lot of the amino acids get directly into the blood, like the branch chain amino acids, uh, which we've actually learned are a signaling con compound. So that's kind of the protein side in a nutshell. <clears throat> the body senses that in a lot of different ways as they pass through the gut. Uh, there are lots of gut hormones, uh, CCK, which affects uh, insulin release, uh, GLP-1, which affects appetite and brain function. <clears throat> so lots of different hormones get released. Uh, <clears throat> carbohydrates, on the other hand, uh, we think about them as sugars or starches. And again, when we get them into the body, basically we break them down to what are called single monosaccharides. So again, we eat them in large form, but we break them down through digestion and then absorb them as glucose or fructose or something like that, which then provides energy. <clears throat> One of the things to keep in mind about the macronutrients is that we have an absolute daily requirement for amino acids. We can't make those. Nine of them are absolutely essential. We have to get them in a daily supply. Carbohydrates, we actually have no requirement at all for. They're simply an energy source. Fats, <clears throat> we have a requirement for what are called essential fatty acids, but that's only about three grams per day if you get the right ones. Uh, Americans typically eat somewhere between 60 and 90 grams of fat per day. Um, so again, we're eating way more than we need. Um, so the, the thing about, again, macronutrients, proteins, absolutely requirement. Um, I always like to tell people when I'm consulting with them that you start your diet with protein. How much protein and what are you going to eat? And then you fill in with fats and carbohydrates because those are basically just energy sources. Uh, and we're clearly eating too much energy because of the obesity problem in the U.S. So that's kind of a big overview. Uh, ask some specific questions and we can go into more detail. Yeah. So let's take it from the perspective of, of a young child. So you talk about we're eating the different macronutrients and the child's getting uh, via either mom through the placenta or then at birth, they're getting it directly as a breast milk source or then as they get food. The, the protein requirements there for a child, uh, how, what we think we need. And then the other piece of the pie is this secondary question of that amino acid when it's broken down, how is it then utilized? Is it hormonally based? Is it, you know, based on uh, mTOR, you know, the mammalian target of rapamycin? So let's get into that a little bit, because I think that's really a fascinating segue. Okay. That, th yeah, there's a lot of interesting things embedded in that. So, um, <clears throat> As of right now, the minimum requirement, the RDA relative to protein in a child 
is 2.2 grams per kg. So we believe that a, a rapidly growing infant has a very high nutrient density need. We need a lot of high quality nutrients with relatively low calories, okay? That need goes down, uh, the minimum requirement goes down up to about 14. At 14 and older, it, the requirement goes down to 0.8 grams per kg, so 2.2 to 0.8. One of the things that we have discovered in the last 20 years of research is that, uh, we'll skip a little older to that 14-year-old, for example, that 14-year-old has to make almost 250 grams of protein per day. But if you're 65 or 70, you still need to make 250. So the issue is, and why so much? Basically, the body is constantly turning over protein. We're constantly replacing, repairing existing protein. So we have this belief that growth requires a lot of protein, but the maximum rate of growth for an infant, for an adolescent, is only about five grams of protein per day, but we need 250 to 300 just to stay even. And so that's been a big discovery is that um, the concept that your requirement for protein goes down as you get older, we now know is not true. In fact, it probably goes up because as we get older, we become less efficient. So that's kind of a, a protein overview uh, and when you mean far, when you mean less efficient, you mean less efficient at actually utilizing the amino acids when they're in the system or the, exactly. absorbing the protein. So um, uh, we can go into detail of what the mechanism is, but basically, if you ate um, 50, 60 grams of protein, sort of a minimum requirement uh, as a 25 year old, you probably will be pretty body stable, but if you're 70 year old and ate the same, uh, you won't get the same outcome. You won't make as much protein. And that's because of regulations such as you mentioned, mTOR, uh, we become less efficient. But so at a meal, when you're a child, what we now know is that, uh, back to your other question, when you're a child, growth and protein synthesis is driven heavily by hormones insulin, growth hormone, IGF-1, uh, dry protein synthesis. So a child can eat protein in small doses all day long. A child can get up and have eight, 10, 12 grams of protein at breakfast and be perfectly fine. But what we now know is if the, you're over 40 and basically have an eight gram protein breakfast, it'll have no effect on muscle health. And we now know that aging is heavily related to keeping your muscles healthy. So we now know that instead of an eight or 10 gram breakfast, we need about a 30 gram breakfast. We can get the same rate of protein synthesis in a 16 year old or a 65 year old, but it takes almost twice as much protein to get it. And so what right. we now know is that eight grams per kg may be okay for a short period for an adult, but it's actually not an optimum to maintain your body composition and your muscle health. Okay. When does that shift occur? So that child is growing predominantly based on insulin and growth hormone, and then testosterone starts to play part of that role in the teenage years. When does the shift occur when everything's predominantly based on amino acid volume and mTOR signaling? Um, so two things in that, let's get into the, I'll come back to the testosterone and insulin because they're regulating different things, which is okay. interesting. Um, so the, the shift we don't really know, but again, I think one can look at it as growth versus non-growth. <clears throat> so okay. when does that occur? Uh, so at, at the very least, uh, it occurs late in the 20s. So we know for a, a fact that uh, this meal difference that I was talking about is different for a 25-year-old versus a 35-year-old. We've done that experiment. So we typically say that, you know, you kind of have a growth period up to 25, perhaps. You sort of have a honeymoon period up till about 40. And over 40, you really need to be more conscious because now you're in a sort of an aging decline uh, and, and muscle bone health really depends on getting your diet right. We, we know we can't stop aging, 
but what we'd like to do is slow it down as much as possible. <laughs> right, right, right. And how much, again, the consumption of the macronutrient has to also have a co co exercise factor to that, correct? So the movement absolutely. has to be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let me get back to the testosterone question too. Uh, so as we look at, at aging, uh, everybody gets all hung up about heart disease and diabetes and, and uh, cancer and things like that that are totally frightening. But we know that most adults will grow, will reach 65. And that once you reach 65, the actual cause of death in most people is a functional cause. They'll have a fall, uh, they'll break a bone, uh, they'll become hospitalized, uh, and they never recover. So many of us who work in the muscle area believe that the most important thing for health span to be healthy through you know, the longest period of active life is keeping your muscles healthy. And to your point, the number one issue there is exercise. You know, we get hung up on diet, but it's sort of like exercise and then diet is down here. If you have a really bad diet, uh, but there's a lot of flexibility on diet, but exercise, particularly resistance exercise, stretching is absolutely critical for muscle and bone health. So, okay. So let me, let me get back to the testosterone issue. Sure. <clears throat> we regulate protein synthesis in the body at two levels. One is at the gene level and the other is at what we call, which we refer to as transcriptional. And that is relating to taking your genetic material and turning it into RNA molecules, ribosomal, messenger RNA, et cetera. And then once we have that, we can then translate it uh, into protein. So two very distinct steps. Uh, testosterone affects the genetic level, which is a capacity for protein synthesis, where insulin IGF-1 affect the translational how rapidly we turn over protein uh, more. So we regulate at two different levels. Uh, testosterone, as you pointed out, is important for that uh, <clears throat> early childhood growth. It sets the capacity uh, that will taper off. Insulin uh, is a massive growth hormone early in life. Uh, we know <clears throat> from humans, but also from animals, if you take a young child uh, let's say five to 12, uh, the insulin's a major growth hormone. You take uh, a 28 year old, it would take four times as much insulin to get the same effect. So everybody uh, talks about insulin resistance. The fact is insulin's primary role in the body is a, is a growth hormone. Uh, and that as we age, it ceases to be that way. We all become insulin resistant because we stop growing. So people think of insulin as regulating blood glucose. In fact, it is simply a savior for excess blood glucose. It's not designed to be a regulatory hormone and it's only become that way because we're eating too many carbs. Oh, that's a perfect segue right there. So as a pediatrician, I see lots and lots of babies being birthed in the hospital and we're having year upon year increased volumes of maternal gestational diabetes or frank diabetes, which is driving this hyperinsulinemic state in the child through the placenta. They're being born macrosomal, which, which makes these harder deliveries, but then they also have this tendency to be large children moving forward. So this is gonna be a twofold question. One, obviously the macronutrient issue related to mom is a major problem as, as it comes to carbohydrates, but how, because it seems to be also that there was some work that we talked about offline, this protein side of it, the amino acid side, if they're not getting enough to set the table. And I think of this also in their respect of the first 20 years of life laying down bone. Once that's done right, you're good. But if you're not laying it down well, you have anorexia or some other problem, you trouble for life. So let's really hone in on that maternal child macronutrient uptake. And then what does a child look like based on those two macros for now? Yeah. So now we start getting into some socioeconomic issues and, and you know food security and things like that. What we know, we did a lot of early work, uh, early in my career work, looking at uh, malnutrition at different times in pregnancy and early lifespan. And what we know is that 
that's when you really establish your muscle cell number. Uh, they're called uh, uh, myotubes. Uh, they're made up of lots of little cells that get strung together, uh, satellite cells that make muscle cells, myoblasts. Uh, basically, uh, at different points in the development, we make those. And so malnutrition, and particularly lack of protein, late in pregnancy, and also early in uh, infant period uh, causes a reduced number of muscle cells. That means your muscle is permanently stunted. And so as you look at body composition later in life, if you don't have as much lean body mass, muscle mass, your ability to burn calories is down. And so it sort of predestines you to being obese. Your body composition shifts that way. And we see that malnutrition uh, in Africa and a lot of developing countries, but we see it in the U.S. in uh, food deserts and underserved populations where uh, they tend to have diets that are low nutrient density. Uh, they don't have adequate uh, high quality protein. Uh, they tend to end up eating too many snack foods, too many high uh, glycemic carbohydrates. And so you can get these growth stunting and that really predestines the child to having a, a poor body composition. Right. And we don't see the Frank Marasmus and, and, and the other ones, Korsiorkor in this country, but to some extent, you know, I think based on the dietary issues that I'm seeing in the hospital, we're clearly getting some watered down version of those two diseases. I think, you know, when I see now, when I first started in medicine, there were two oral glucose tolerance tests a mother needed to pass to be considered non-diabetic. Now they've shifted it out to three. If you're capable of passing a third, somehow that's considered okay. And frankly, that makes no sense to me because again, all you're doing is saying that the the macronutrient composition uh, of the, the, the carbohydrate volume was adequately helped by insulin spike at three hours out, but that doesn't mean you're metabolically healthy, nor is that good for the child. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. Um, again, back to my insulin comments earlier, uh, people argue about what causes insulin resistance. And the reality is insulin causes insulin resistance. Uh, we know that blood sugar, glucose is absolutely essential for the brain, the red blood cells, the kidney, but it's also very toxic. We, it's, it has a disease, we call it diabetes. So the body has to be very careful of how it handles blood sugar. We need some, but too much. Again, my U-shaped curve, we, we have a range of good intake. Um, most people would argue that for adults, um, you know, our minimum carbohydrate need per day is around 70, 80 grams. We have an RDA for carbohydrate of 130, but the average American is eating 300. Right. And so that's why we have obesity. That's why we have epidemics of, of, of diabetes. We're, we're exposing the body to more carbohydrates than they can use. And so that distorts metabolism. Back in the you know, early 1900s, when everyone worked in labor intensive things, we could burn more carbohydrates. Uh, you know, people were working in agriculture, people were working in construction, and, and you needed a lot of calories, maybe three, 4,000 a day. But now we're down to where most adults probably are under 2,000 a day, and having 300 grams of carbohydrate is just more exposure than we can continuously handle. And, and to your point, again, with the movement in the old days where we're moving a lot more, that was part of the function of using the glucose that's ingested, right? So let's talk about that a little bit. So the skeletal muscle is the predominant source of glycogen storage, but also of, of, uh, of, of movement-induced glucose, what, GLUT4 transporters, they're called, and then the uptake of the sugar, the burning. In, in the sedentary state, that's all going sideways, and so we developed this insulin resistance, we're calling it. What's the mechanism there? Because I've heard it's looked at in both ways from you know the, the fat side of the diosoglycerol to what's the story? I know you're muscle centric, so I'd love to hear it from your perspective. Yeah, insulin resistance in model systems can be created in different ways. Um, it's, it's very much an 
energy problem. And so if you're eating too much, too many calories, you can create insulin resistance. You know, what, what is insulin doing? Insulin is trying to get carbohydrates out of the blood. Again, that's diabetes. And so insulin affects muscle. I'll get back to that. It affects liver. Liver puts out uh, the carbohydrates that come in from your diet all pass through the liver. Liver can store some glycogen. It can also make it into fats. Uh, muscle can handle it. And then ultimately adipose can get it. And the issue is how much, you know, insulin has to get it back down. We, we diagnose diabetes is after a meal, if carbohydrates are back, not back down to a normal baseline level within two hours, that's a diagnosis of diabetes. Or if it gets too high after the meal, that's diagnosis of diabetes. Muscle is, a, as you point out, uh, a primary user, uh, but what does muscle use it for? It uses it for activity. <laughs> and so if you're highly active, uh, one of the things we always try and teach people is that you earn your carbohydrates. Uh, the body has around a, a need for about 100 grams per day, as I was mentioning earlier. Um, and that's for basic things like brain function and red blood cells, et cetera. But anything you eat above that has to relate to exercise, muscle activity. And so we basically say you earn about 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour of intense exercise per day. And so, you know, 300 grams of carbs per day means that you have to be putting in three hours of intense exercise every day, and not too many people are doing that. Uh, inside of muscle, what happens? Okay, so <clears throat> basically, as you mentioned, there are there are different glucose transporters. GLUT4 is insulin sensitive. In muscle, we also have GLUT2, uh, GLUT1. Uh, and we can bring in actually glucose into the body without insulin with GLUT1. Uh, insulin will trigger the transporter called GLUT4. Uh, you mentioned glycogen. Well, glycogen is a reserve store of glucose for activity. So if you get up in the morning and you have your cereal, you replenish any glycogen you might have used overnight, and now you sit at your computer all morning, you're not using any glycogen. You get to lunch meal and you have another high carbohydrate meal. There's no place to put it. That glycogen store is already full. So now you have to do something else with it. And so what the something else is, is muscle is using basically two fuels, fats and carbohydrates. Muscle in a resting state would prefer using fatty acids. It's very efficient conversion into body energy. It can use carbohydrates, but it, it prefers using carbohydrates under intense stress or exercise. And so we have this balance. So if you're uh, sitting and working, talking like you and I are, or even going out walking, the body wants to use fats. If you dose it with really high carbohydrates, the carbohydrates, because they're poisonous, they're toxic, will shut down fat use. And now you will have to use the carbohydrates. And when you shut down the fat use, you'll begin to accumulate some things called diacylglyceride and ceramides. And, and those actually will feed back and inhibit GLUT4. So again, if you have too many carbs, it will look like fats are causing insulin resistance. But if you also have too many carbs, we know that carbohydrates will also fit, uh, re, uh, feed back and inhibit GLUT4. So now we've got this balance. And so long story, there's a great series of studies by Randall and Bob Wolf that uh, the original theory was by Randall was that fats cause insulin resistance, diacylglyceride, that's the feedback. What Bob Wolf showed did the same experiments with better techniques showed that carbohydrates always cause the resistance, that carbohydrates are toxic and the body has to get rid of them. So it shuts down fat metabolism. So the worst of all worlds then is having too many calories, carbohydrates and fats the body has to get rid of the carbs so it makes the fats look guilty. 
but it's really the carbs that are driving it, which is why a lot of people find that keto diets can be functional for them. Can be really high fat, but the fact that they're lower calories and lower carbs, they seem to get along fine. So that's a long explanation that both can cause insulin resistance, but in reality, in my opinion, carbs are the ones really driving the show. Right. And so for the clinicians, when you're speaking to the patient in this situation, the bottom line is the volume of carbohydrate and the amount of movement, right? Because if you're biking up, you know, Mount Mitchell in North Carolina, it doesn't matter how many carbs you're taking in because you're burning the heck out of them. So it's an irrelevant story. But if you're sitting like you and I are doing and I'm slugging down a Frappuccino and a donut, uh, I'm going to cause trouble. Does that sound right? That's exactly right. I, uh, again, I, I like to tell people you earn your carbohydrates and the more sedentary you are, the fewer you've earned. And, you know, if you're <clears throat> relatively sedentary and eat a lot of carbs, there's a very high probability you're going to get into problems and diabetes, heart disease, cancer all follow that. Perfect. So now let's segue back to the the protein story or the amino acid story. So we're consuming the macro and it gets into the system. And let's say we're 25, 30, 40 years old. And the, you know, you always see these guys going to the gym, working out and they get their BCAAs, branch chain amino acids, right? And it says all over the label, muscle building. And I know your work was critical in finding out that leucine, the amino acid leucine was the main player in triggering this muscle protein synthesis. What's the story there and help people understand why that matters at different stages of life? Again, the five-year-old's different story than the 25 and the 90-year-old. Okay, so um, leucine is an amino acid. It's one of the three branch chain amino acids that are all essential. So we have nine essentials. Three of them are called branch chain because of their their chain their side chains look a little like fatty acids. They're branch chain amino acids. Um, years ago, we learned that those three amino acids show up at muscle almost in exactly the quantity that you eat them, and we learned that they have some relationship to protein synthesis. So my lab was studying that for years. Uh, and it took a long time before we got techniques that were sensitive enough to really explore it at that translation level I mentioned earlier, uh, and you had mentioned mTOR. So what we discovered uh, is that leucine has a very unique role in stimulating mTOR, which triggers protein synthesis at that translation level. <clears throat> but what we also know now is that mTOR is sens sensitive to many things. It's sensitive to amino acids, particularly leucine. It's sensitive to hormones, insulin, IGF-1. It's sensitive to energy, particularly through a molecule known as AMP kinase. And it's sensitive to stress and particularly resistance exercise through a molecule known as RED1. So there's four different inputs into that. And when we're a child, the primary input is the growth input. And so leucine isn't very important. Insulin will trigger growth of mTOR very nicely. And so children will grow with relatively poor diets, frankly. It's a survival characteristic. We right. are designed evolutionarily to grow and reproduce, even if we're out in the wild and we have bad diets. Okay. So it's a survival characteristic. Uh, once we get to our 40s, you know, sort of past reproductive age, we didn't evolve to really have great ability to main, you know, to live to 90. We didn't really evolve that way. Uh, what we now know from lots of research is that mTOR signal, now the exercise and the leucine become the dominant. You can't be insulin deficient. You have to have some there, but very low levels are fine. So as long as you have leucine and, and exercise, you can maintain muscle protein synthesis pretty well. And so that transition occurs from growth to aging um, somewhere, you know, 30s. We, we know we can detect it by 40s. Okay. 
Interesting. Yeah, I find that that to be just such a fascinating way of looking at it from a parent and a clinician perspective, because each each segment of life needs to be looked at differently. And yeah, I so think it, again, getting getting the daily amount of protein for a child is the key. But once you get into your 40s, now you need to be meal specific. The total right. amount per day is important. Uh, but we actually need to be more meal specific. And what we know for absolute truth is that the first meal of the day and the last meal of the day are very important to that whole protein synthesis. When we're adults, protein synthesis after a meal only lasts for about two hours. And so if everybody, typical American, only eats all their protein at dinner, that means you're spending 22 hours of the day breaking down protein. We always have this process of synthesis and breakdown going on. I mentioned earlier that we need to make 250 to 300 grams of protein. That's because of this process of turnover. And so through the night when you're fasting, you wake up in what we call catabolic condition. Uh, and so now you're breaking down protein uh, and you're going to stay that way until you have a meal that has enough leucine to trigger it. The amount of leucine is around two and a half to three grams. And if you have a normal American diet, uh, 30 to 35 grams of protein will give you that amount. So you people will hear, well, you need 30 grams of protein at a meal. Well, that's where it comes from is that's my estimate of how much protein you have to have to get enough leucine. Okay, so we've got this catabolic period back to the exercise thing. Uh, what we were studying is how do we how do we study this leucine mTOR signal? And what what we know is it's a translation regulation. So that's kind of minute to minute. So we wanted some way to make the body catabolic quickly so we could study recovery quickly. And what we found was that exhaustive exercise was a good model. So we showed that exercise, exhaustive exercise, stopped protein synthesis and leucine would recover it. And so that's where the whole concept of athletes having protein and branch chain amino acids and recovery came from is we showed that intense exercise makes you catabolic and leucine makes you anabolic. So hence muscle recovery. So that's where that whole story comes from. And so for the, for the young people listening, if they're bodybuilders are working out, they need minimum of 30 grams, probably multiple times a day. That 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 signal turning on mTOR lasts for how many hours? The signal on for the the signal for mTOR probably lasts four to five hours, but the okay. effect on actually stimulating protein synthesis only lasts two. And so okay. people will say, okay, well I had my meal, uh when should I have my next one? Well, as far as a leucine mTOR effect, you're not going to get any effect shorter than five hours apart. So people say, well, should I have lots of small protein meals? And my answer is no. What you wanted to do is cycle. You want to have a meal and then at least four or five hours later, you want to have another meal. Uh, you don't want to do having protein every two hours would be the worst possible choice. Right. And I know from one of your studies, it literally, if you don't hit that 30, 40 gram mark, you're not triggering it. So it's critical to hit that number. If wow. you're looking at this protein synthesis in the older age group, again, not the hormonal stage, this older leucine based. So we know that in a child, in a, in a 12 year old and a 20 year old, that they will get a response with 10 grams of protein. We know that 15 is a little better. 20 is a little better, but it's sort of a linear curve and they'll plateau out um, 25 grams. They begin to plateau out. <clears throat> One of the things, uh, but in an adult, uh, we can't trigger mTOR until we get 30 grams. So at 10 grams, uh, again, one of the things to keep in mind is that we keep talking about muscle, but liver is totally different. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I'm an adult, uh, let's say I'm a vegetarian and I'm only eating 50 grams per day. So obviously getting to 30 grams at three meals is pretty tricky to do. Uh, right. But if you have 50 grams and you're taking in 15 grams per meal, your liver and kidney and gut will all look fine because fine. they're not regulated by mTOR uh, in the same way. They're regulated right. uh, 
mTOR, what we discovered is mTOR regulates an initiation factor called EIF4. Uh, it's a capacity regulator. But in liver, it's regulated by a different initiation factor called EIF2, which is energy sensitive. So as long as you're not starving, small amounts of protein will make your liver look totally fine. And your lean body mass is a total, a lot of its organ. And so you'll think you look okay, but you're slowly losing muscle mass. And that's right. the disease we now recognize as sarcopenia. We lose five, six, seven percent muscle mass starting at 40 through 80 every year. Uh, and that's what we're trying to prevent by being a muscle centric nutrition. We talk about muscle centric nutrition because it a maintains lean body mass. It maintains your muscle, your functional mobility, but also your metabolic health, your ability to use carbs, your ability right. to use fats. All of those things relate to your muscle health. Uh, right. And if we can keep muscle healthy, then your chances of having a, a, a health span that goes well into your 80s or 90s is pretty good. And I think about this, some of my favorite guests have had some kind of an anthropologic background. And I think about the way the system was set up. Like you said earlier, kids can get away with diets that are imperfect when they're young because of survival mechanisms. I think of all these genes in our body for that are there for two reasons procreation and survival that species need and so when we think about this we're living in a world now where we are looking at macronutrients in such a weird way with these fad diets this that, and the other thing and you just said something about vegetarian and i want to hone in there a little bit because protein is not protein is not protein so let's talk about protein quality because i think it's really important for again clinicians and parents to know that a animal-based protein is not the same as a plant-based protein in quality absorption everything so let's speak to that great um so that's an area that i study a lot because i'm really an expert in amino acids um what we know is that animal-based proteins have exactly that balance of those nine essential amino acids and even the non-essential amino acids that we need. Animal proteins always have a higher essential to non-essential ratio. And within that, they have some key amino acids, leucine that we were talking about, lysine, methionine, they have the exact right proportions. Uh, one of the things I always recommend, you know, comment on is uh, plants have proteins and amino acids that are designed for plants. So they're making leaves and roots and flowers and seeds where humans need to make arms and legs and hearts and brains. And they're not the same. You know, we don't have limbs, you know, and, and right. leaves and flowers. Uh, and so, you know, we, we can take those plant proteins and we can use them, but they're never right balance. So, you know, if we, um, if for example, we look at whey protein, which is one that has been heavily studied, uh, we know that we can get the right amount of leucine and essential amino acids with about 25 grams at a meal. Where if we take soy protein, which is considered one of the better plant proteins, it takes 35 grams to be equal. So the point with plant proteins is you can do it, but it takes a lot more knowledge of, of food as to how to balance it. It's always going to take more total protein and more total calories. And the problem we tend to get in with vegetarians is that almost all vegetarians reduce their protein amount. So what we know is that if you're a vegetarian and you eat around 120 grams per day of protein, that'll be fine. But most vegetarians eat about 65. And now the quality of that protein becomes really critical. Do you get the essential amino acids you can? Um, so that's, you know, that ratio and how you design it is important. The other thing to keep in mind about plant proteins is the, the proteins there in the plant are for the plant benefit. And somewhere between 30 and 40% are bound to fiber. And so when we eat that plant protein, uh, in, a, in its native natural form, a lot of those proteins are bound to fiber, which humans can't digest. And so we say they're not bioavailable. So with animal proteins, we basically absorb, digest, uh, you know, utilize 
100% of animal proteins, where with plant proteins, it's somewhere between 60 and 70%. So if you look at a, a box of, of cereal, wheat cereal in the morning, and it says it has four grams of protein per serving, it's probably less than 60% available. So the reality is it may only have two grams of available protein in it. Um, so bioavailability and, and protein amino acid quality are absolutely different between animal proteins and plant proteins. And that's why we always recommend a mixed meal. Plant proteins are perfectly great, uh, but if you start getting them above 60% of your diet, you really need to be conscious of where you're getting those amino acids and what amount are you getting to. And potentially tying more carbohydrate to it just to get in that volume per day, which has yeah, its downstream people, effects as we age. Yeah, people think of, of legumes, for example, and beans as great protein sources. Uh, but the reality is they tend to carry three to one, four to one carbohydrates. So right. if I'm going to get 100 grams of of protein from black beans, I'm gonna get 400 grams of carbohydrates. Granted, right. some of it's fiber, but a lot of it's carbohydrates. And likewise with nuts, nuts come uh, have decent protein in them, but they also have huge amounts of fat. So basically nutrient density is not good. Uh, so you, right. you're gonna to have to, you know, the worst of all world is being vegetarian and sedentary. So now you've got a low protein diet and you can't handle many calories, you know? So well, vegetarians who are 30 years old and highly active get along great, but you find a lot fewer vegetarians who are 65 because yeah. you can't deal with the quantity of calories you have to have to get a decent diet. So I, I had a sort of an experiment well before I understand this, I understood this data probably about 13 years ago, I went vegetarian and I'm a, I'm an athlete. I do a lot of exercise and I'm also a metabolic burn rate. That's probably more than the average person. Um, I have a lot of neat, I fidget tons. And, and so I'm just burning calories constantly. So I go vegetarian and my neighbor at one point in time, I don't know how long I was in this already. And my neighbor asked me if I was okay. He walked up and said, are you battling cancers or something wrong with you? And I hadn't even really, I knew I was getting skinnier, but really hadn't thought about it. I normally vacillate between 165 and 170 pounds, six feet tall. I was down to 152. Yeah. And to drop 13 pounds off this frame, it probably looked terrible. But to your point, I couldn't get enough protein to maintain my muscle mass as I was working out. I was running a lot and it just, and then when I started eating animal meats again, everything came back and now I'm back to 168 and, and doing fine. So it was my own experiment into that reality. And I was like, Ooh, this is not good. Um, so yeah, crazy. People, people get wrapped up in this concept of plant-based diets and vegetarian, and they're kind of missing the point. Um, to your, what you were just saying, you, you know, you lost weight on it. Most people do lose weight if they go truly vegetarian because the nutrient density is lower, the fiber is higher, and we should all eat more plants. I, right. I argue that, you know, nobody in the United States is really eating plant, you know, based foods. And if you look, look at the number one plant based food in the United States is, is, French fries. The number right. two is tomato sauce, which is technically a fruit. Uh, right. and the number three is lettuce. So nobody's eating vegetables and the one they eat or eating are, are lousy. So I'm 100% agree. We need a different plant-based diet, but the issue is we don't need a more plant-based diet. We need a diet with better plants. Right. <laughs> right better now, plants and spiked with good protein. Absolutely. You know, so we, we always try and teach people to think about uh, looking at a, a plate in front of them. I, I'm not a fan of counting calories. I think that, you know, unless you're an accountant or a CPA, that's a pretty stupid thing to do. But uh, uh, basically, we try and teach people that front and center in your plate should be a protein source, whatever you want it to be, but a protein source. Uh, and then you should have this big vegetable or high fiber source. And that can be any amount you want your broccoli, your green beans, your strawberries, your blueberries, whatever. And then your third section is what we would call carbohydrates. And those are rices and pastas and breads and cereals. And we always tell people that your carbohydrate section can never be larger than your protein section in volume. 
If you do that, you'll control your diet. So you've got yeah. a lot of fiber, you've got the right kind of plants, but you're controlling those high glycemic, high calorie snack foods, French fries, pastas, breads, candies, the things yep. that guaranteed to make you fat. People argue, well, it's carbs or it's fat. It's both. I mean, we want calories lower, uh, but you, it's important to realize that in the American diet, 50% of our calories are coming from carbs and 35 from fats. So how can fats be the primary problem? They're, they're less total calories. Right, right. You've got a lot more room in your diet to lower your carb part. That, you know, we, we tell people let fat come from natural foods. If there's fat in your nuts or your peanut butter or your steak or your fish, that's fine, let it be. Or even your dairy products. Just don't eat fat that's in fried foods or or comes with candy bars or comes with donuts or, you know, those right. are the fats that you got to get rid of. Right. And especially because we're not even going to get into this today, but the, the, the data now coming on the deep dive that I've taken recently with just the immune system's response to those fats is just unbelievably sad for the human body. So I want to be respectful of your time Likewise, again. I know we've... Insulin is one of the most negative components to immune response. For so, sure. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, both of them, both of them have their bad qualities. There's no question about it. So we'd like to balance both. I'm a, I'm a big fan of nutritional balance. <laughs> yeah. We, I have a nurse practitioner who works for uh, at our office named Zach Strong, and he made a, a plate to, I'm not a big fan of the American government's plate. So we made our own and, and Zach's plate was beautifully done. And it's got half the plate is vegetables, the whole half the plate, one quarter of the plates a protein source, usually lean fish, meat, and then another quarter, uh, another quarter of the plate's going to be your fruits and, and others. And I, we hand that out to every child. And, and I think that's sort of the reality. Again, that's how evolution has expected us to eat that goes with the framework of our genes so with a few minutes we have left on i want to touch on this because i've heard you speak to it before and i find it so fascinating talk about the reality of upcycling nitrogen from plants into the meat of the animal that then we use as an amino acid source i think that is just again to the point of nature has this already done in the way we're supposed to do it we just need to stop fighting nature yeah so I think the, you know, the evolutionary biologists recognize that humans evolved uh, by eating animal products. We get a much higher nutrient density from it. Um, if you look at the American diet right now, 70% of our calories come from plants, but most of them are coming from added oils, sugars, and refined grains. Only 30% of our calories are coming from animal foods, and that includes eggs and dairy and fish in that category, but we get over 70% of our nutrients from that 30%, 100% of, of B12 and, and certain nutrients, and you know over 70% of our protein. So we have a very nutrient-dense part of the, of the diet. Um, I'm sorry, I lost the train of thought there. Where were we going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I wanted to head into the upcycling of the nitrogen. Oh, the upcycling. Yeah. So so within that, um, you know, one of the questions I always like to ask people is, so we need the essential amino acids. Where do you think they come from? And so, well, obviously the grocery store. But I said, well, where did they come from? <laughs> you know, where did they come from before that? And the reality is the only place in life uh, other than some chemical laboratory, is we get them from bacteria. And there are two places where those bacteria occur. One is on the roots of plants. So when you go out and you fertilize your broccoli or whatever in your garden, you put nitrogen on it. And the bacteria on the roots of those plants can fix the nitrogen and they make what are called organic amines. And the plant can then eventually make them into amino acids. So plants in reality are the source of our, all of our essential amino acids. But as I mentioned earlier, plants are making them to make flowers and seeds and roots and plants. So they're not in the right proportion. They have a disproportionate amount of non-essential. They're very low in some of the essential ones, lysine, methionine, and leucine. So that's where animals came into the picture. We can now 
use animals that will eat the plants and the animals can then get the proteins and manufacture them into high quality milk or eggs or meats. And the one animal in life or types of animals in life that are critical to that are called ruminants or cattle, sheep, deer, goats. They have what's called a ruminant stomach. And this stomach is sort of a four stomach and, and it's full of bacteria. And so when we take in those plants with all of these forms of nitrogen amines and amino acids and non-essential amino acids, these bacteria, which are now part of our the microbiome of the animal, will now take all of that and convert it into an amino acid that's exactly right for the animal. And that amino acid balance is exactly right for humans. And so a cow can eat all kinds of hay and silage and, and waste material from cotton milling and all kinds of things, things that come from gasohol manufacturing. And then the bacteria will change that into a uh, high quality protein. It's called upcycling uh, and basically transform it into meats and milks that are absolutely ideal for human consumption. So we don't have to eat a ton of silage or hay or, or straw. Uh, we can eat four ounces of steak or a glass of milk and get the proteins we need. And that's really what, what allowed humans to evolve into you know, a brain-centric, muscle-centric being. Uh, so it's, it's part of our evolution and it's important a part of the way we think about food. Yeah. And that, and, and that to me is one of the most beautiful ways to look at animal meats and animal products in general, right? The, the, the natural evolution of the coexistence of the species of us and animals and plants, it, it was meant to be this way. So I, I, I don't ever want to demonize somebody's choice to be vegetarian or choice to be yeah. um, a vegan but to your point, B12, hard to get outside of an animal product, right? Choline, hard to get outside of an animal product, not enough methionine in the plant base. So there was a reason behind the madness to the decisions that have been made for millennia to eat this way. And I think we're going down the wrong path. I'm very worried about young kids being on vegan and vegetarian diets. I think it should not be allowed. Um, uh, just based on just the evolutionary biology that we're speaking to right now. And I hope that the one fads that, die out. If I can interrupt you for a second. Yes, please. One of, the, one of the things that I like to use as an example would be a wheat cereal. If you take a wheat cereal, a serving size is two thirds of a cup or something, four grams of protein, and they recommend six ounces of milk with it, that actually is an exact balance of essential amino acids, lysine in particular, leucine, methionine. But if you switch to soy milk, instead of six ounces, you now need 32 ounces of soy milk to balance the lysine problem. And people don't know that. People look right. at almond milk and don't, for, don't even, they see the word milk and don't even realize it has zero protein in it, maybe right. one gram. Um, right. And so mothers feeding children uh, are being deceived by some of these issues, uh, making it plant-based, uh, making calling uh, almond milk or soy milk, uh, I think that should be a standard of identity. That's just a deceiving practice that uh, not all mothers can understand. They don't understand the amino acid chemistry well enough. So, uh, you know, I think I think vegetarians can get along fine. I think it's probably easiest between your twenties and forties. Uh, I don't have a problem with it, but. I, I do have a problem with people saying, well, that's the right way. It's some sort of a moral superiority issue. Uh, that's just simply not true. And as a nutritional biochemist, we know it's not true from a health standpoint. Right. Well, we're out of time and I'm very depressed about that because I have a lot more I'd love to talk to you about, especially the world of kids with milk. We're having so many kids who can't drink milk and animal product of milk anymore because of these immune related IgG4 effects that we're seeing. But we'll come back to that another day. I'm going to give you the last word before I go there. I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your research, your years of dedication to the science and coming on to share your wisdom with with the uh, 
the listener. So I'm very grateful for your work, Don. Well, I appreciate talking with you, Chris. We covered a lot of interesting things. I, you know, I think again, the take-home message I give to people is it's all about balance. We'd like natural foods. We'd like it as less processed as possible. Uh, most people are overeating carbs, particularly in highly refined areas that often carries a lot of fat with it. So it's about balance uh, and your personal choice in terms of how met, what kind of vegetables and what kind of proteins you eat is a personal choice. Either way can work, but again, you have to have the knowledge to make it work correctly. Uh, and I think that's one of the areas that, you know, Americans in general uh, tend to eat out a lot. They tend to snack a lot. And I think, you know, home eating of natural foods, understanding foods is something we all need to get better at. So. Well, thank you for sharing your wisdom with everyone to learn the basics that we are getting with the science hardcore behind it. I love it and have a great day. And uh, I just appreciate everything you've done today. Thanks, Riz. Wow. What a conversation. Dr. Lehman is just such an incredible speaker when it comes to the topics of macronutrients, especially protein and carbohydrates. I feel so grateful to have him uh, give us all this information to make better decisions as we move forward. You know, the world is in a strange place where in the old days we just ate food and we ate it in relatively normal volumes and normal uh, macronutrient makeups. And now we have fad diets and fad decisions based on X, Y, and Z choice to either lose weight or gain this function or gain that function. But what really anthropologically makes sense? What were we supposed to do as humans? What was the predetermined or pre-chosen route to health sufficiency, right? So lifespan, meaning how long do you live, but health span, how well do you live, right? And we talked in detail in this conversation about protein quality and digestion, how we get it in. You know, what do we need? Do we need a recommended dietary allowance or a percentage of intake or actually an absolute number? And very clearly, it's an absolute number of grams of protein a day. We need to think of protein more like a vitamin or as a, min or as a minimal need not a, you know, oh, we'll just get this with this. No, we need to have a volume, right? And amino acids are used in the production of proteins of all types. And proteins are found everywhere, whether it's functions in the body as enzymes or, you know, structure of uh, muscle, the heart. I mean, there's a lot to be said about this. So it is vital. The only source in the body of nitrogen is found in protein, right? Carbs and fats don't have nitrogen in it. And so, you know, we're learning a lot about all of the macros and how they come to be a part of our existence. Again, we don't think of protein as an energy source. That is really carbohydrates and fats. Protein is more a structural component or a functional component, right? And, and, Meat in and of itself is made up of amino acids, right? And they turn into proteins, which we use to move and do everything we need to do, right? So when you consume another animal's meat, you know, most of that's absorbed. It's in the form we want it to be. Whereas in the vegetable form, as Dr. Lehman discussed in detail, the protein absorption is less, 60 to 90, 70% instead of 90 plus percent. And that's because of fiber and other things. So it's very important now that people who have different diets, Again, no judgment on your choice of diet, but just being in the know about why being on X diet would change the need to understand how much volume, right? This is super important. And as Dr. Lehman stated, you know, legumes and different plant-based proteins are low in methionine, which is super important for, you know, insulin function, leucine, super important for mechanistic target of, target of rapamycin, which helps with muscle synthesis. Again, your heart, your legs, your arms, everything you need to do, right? You don't want it on all the time, but you want it on for certain times. And if you're not getting enough of this in your diet, that may be a problem with muscle growth. So important stuff to consider. I was super fascinated by his discussion around ruminants and bacteria that uh, you know, the roots of plants have these bacteria there and they're, you know, mixed in the stomach when these animals consume these foods, you know, as grass or, or hay or whatever, and the bacteria are there and they are used to fix the nitrogen and then make amino acids from the organic soil amines, the nitrogen, right? And so incredible upcycling, how nature and God had set this up so that we get these incredible amino acids for the functions that we need actually from the microbiome of the earth, right? Crazy, incredible stuff. 
bacteria upcycle this nitrogen for us. You know, another plug in the world for the good microbes of the world, right? The good bacteria. We always talk about bacteria as being bad guys. No, 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 no. The vast majority of bacteria on the planet are good for us. Knowing where they are and how to get them is super important. Remember that the body replaces every protein at least four times a year. As you get older, the efficiency of this turnover goes down, right? So we become less capable of turning over the proteins well. Given enriched amino acid volume can help the body function even with advancing age. I mean, this is super important. On a plant-based diet, you will need to eat more protein in grams than you would on an animal-based diet in order to achieve the same goal. Just knowing that is super important. In children, the protein quality is less important because a lot of their growth is based on hormones, right? As you get older, that's very different. I found the other part of his discussion around the critical window of timing where protein deficiency makes it difficult for children to put on lean muscle mass as they get older and then therefore causing a propensity for obesity. Super interesting. Muscle cells are multinucleated, unlike most other cells in the body. So these muscle cells have satellite cells that have these nuclei and DNA in them. And early on, if those satellite cells don't develop because of a low protein diet or an insufficient protein diet in mom or the child, then the child may grow up to have less ability to make muscle mass. There we see then in turn, that would be a problem as they age with then potentially obesity because lean mass is involved in health. Less lean mass means you burn less calories just sitting, right? And this is important because if we're eating too many calories, that becomes a propensity towards obesity. You know, muscle can handle between 25 and 60 grams of protein at any one sitting when you consume it. So if you eat more at that sitting, you know, that's not putting it into muscle. But if you eat it two, three times a day of, you know, 30, 40 grams of protein as an animal source, again, it might need to be 60, 70 if it's a plant-based source then you're in good shape. But if you're eating once a day and you're only getting all your protein in that time, that may be a little bit more difficult for you to achieve the goals you're looking for, right? So again, knowing some of these things as discussed in the context of this, this discussion are super, super interesting. And the final plug is to remember that exercise is critical. So movement, resistance, exercise, you know, whether it's working in the yard or actually lifting weights or whatever, pulling yourself up, you know, climbing a rope, doesn't matter. But the use of muscles is key to inducing protein synthesis as discussed. So let's, as a group, have a determined goal of helping our children and ourselves consume the right types of protein and the right volumes in order to maintain normal muscle mass synthesis, as well as encouraging movement that has a similar effect as well. Therefore, we improve our lifespan as well as our health span using the data from top-fledged scientists that currently are sharing what they know with us real-time today. Well, that's it for today. Thanks all for everything. Much, much, much appreciate you know, Dr. Lehman for giving us his time and sharing his knowledge with us. As always, everyone, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day, y'all.